Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Well, just like Peter just told you, you're listening to V Radio. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this edition of V Radio, whether you'll be listening live or on archive. Uh, today's show, we're going to talk about the morality of owning life. Uh, now, basically, it's a kind of a big concept, and I know that the title might be a little strange at first, but uh, the more you uh, get into what it is I'm talking about, I think you'll understand. Um, this uh, article, the concept for it, actually came up when I was watching a documentary about poverty. Um, and uh, I've watched, as you probably know, since I'm BTV, I watch all kinds of documentaries. I've watched a lot of sub, uh, uh, different documentaries that made me think about you know, whether or not it's moral or just or correct for people to be able to own things that people you know, need for survival. And um, I also talked about the fact that, um, you know, through the capitalist system, the free market system, it's much easier for people to own these things. Anyway, so I've got uh, uh, panelists with me today, um, some of which you probably should be uh, familiar with by now. We've got Chibi and Dark Dancer. Uh, Say hello, guys. Hello. Hi, guys. Um, I know Thunder wants to be on the show. I think he got called away from the keyboard for something, so whenever he messages me, I'll bring him back on. But um, in any case, uh, you can check out the blog post in question. Uh, when I posted this on the Zeitgeist forums, I posted a link to the blog. Um, I'm going to be updating the blog more often. I just generally, anytime there's a, a show where I kind of made up the topic myself and it's not about... Uh, bringing somebody on the show or anything like that. I do a blog post so that people can kind of read along with the subject matter in question. So um, if you go to vradio.org, that's v-radio.org, you can uh, see a link to the blog on the front page. Um, In any case, uh, you can also follow the blog there, and it will let you know when I've updated my blog. So, oh, uh, another couple of announcements. I have created a separate Facebook page for V Radio. Uh, basically, my, some of my friends on my regular Facebook were complaining about the uh, fact that sometimes my shows would post like two or three times, and most of my friends are not interested in any of this stuff. So I made a separate V Radio page, uh, or Facebook page, rather than having to subject them to that or just having them delete me from their wall, which is basically what a lot of them were saying they were going to do. So um, the link to my uh, Facebook can also be found on the Zeitgeist forums. Uh, it can also be found on vradio.org um, if you go to links, in addition to my MySpace. So um, please feel free to add me there, and I'll be posting notifications. It looks like Thunder is ready to be added to the call, so I'm going to bring him in now. again, thanks again for tuning in. I hope you guys have enjoyed the show so far. Um, I'm once again sorry that there's been such a distance between this show and the last ones. I just, I've actually been working on this blog post for a while. It still, honestly, doesn't really meet my expectations. I wanted it to be a bit more uh, clean and all that. But I think it gets the point across, and I'm hoping that this will help you think about this, because what this is really about is people who are screaming up and down about personal property rights and well, private property rights, and also just the right of one to profit from things. And it kind of comes to calls to question is what the theme we're dealing with tonight as to what is something that people should be able to profit from, you know, without 
sacrificing their humanity in the process. So, hello, Thunder. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Sorry about that. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to start by reading the first part. And uh, in typical V Radio fashion, we're going to call on panelists to talk about the specific um, sections of this uh, blog post. So now we're going to read uh, The Morality of Owning Life. Over the course of my time in the freedom movement, I remember very clearly being drilled on the importance of private property. I still believe that what I call personal property is something that should be entitled to, yeah, that people should be entitled to, your basic needs of life, clothing, etc., basically meaning that these items for one's personal use are not something you should be asked to share, like your personal clothing, things like that. Not that it should matter, as it should be relatively easy to deal with getting these items for everyone. What I'm talking about in this article is the morality of owning life. Let's consider for a moment various aspects of this. Now, I did update this to once again point out one of my major points about the freedom movement's positions on private property. They always enshrine the founding fathers, and I have to point out that the founding fathers' concept of private property also included owning other human beings, which is why slavery was in the Constitution. But I digress. Um, we start off with owning ideas. We developed the patent system to protect the little guy who came up with a good idea from having his idea being taken from him by someone with more money. This Band-Aid solution to one of the glaring problems with capitalism was well-intentioned originally, but the definition of what a patent is and what its applications are has changed to the benefit of those on top. This shows itself in many ways, but as Jacques Fresco points out, one does not really invent anything. To say that you do implies that the capacity for any effect your invention produces was not present beforehand. I remember as a young boy believing that Ben Franklin invented electricity. He didn't invent it. It was already there. Imagine for a moment if Ben Franklin went and patented electricity. There is, of course, merit to a, be a person benefiting from the work that went into their research, but they still have an incentive. If you invent a device to solve one problem or another, you still get to use the item. Your life will be improved significantly because of this. This could be something as simple as inventing a TV remote so you don't have to get off to the couch to change the station. Now, how does it hurt you not to give this invention away? Now, consider that if society at large considers giving one's inventions to all of mankind for equal distribution and, and use, how many more ideas will be openly exchanged? Your TV remote design given freely and your neighbor's better mousetrap design given freely. Now, the dark side of this notion of one, of one having a right to own their ideas is these ideas could also be used to save lives or when withholding these ideas would actually lead to the death of other human beings. Should someone be able to own someone's ability to live or die? Let's look at some of the ways this manifests in our society. So I'm going to go ahead and read the first one. Owning freedom. So how does one own freedom? I was checking my mail the other day, and I keep getting mail from Ron Paul's Campaign for Liberty, which is a well-intentioned movement despite its devotion to free market capitalism. I donated a good amount of money to Congressman Paul's campaign during his time running for president. He pulled out of the race and took the money he had left, reportedly about $4 million, and started a new organization to assist freedom-minded candidates. What started to annoy me is that every publication I get from them involves them asking for still more money. There are pre-addressed envelopes in every letter with suggested amounts of money to donate. Why do we have to invest in civil rights? Why should any effort involving the rights of human beings be something, that, something one has to spend their money on? Shouldn't such efforts be an inalienable right? But they are not. Corporations own the media. The media is a tool to push their agendas towards whatever profits them. 
Whether this is a brainwashing kids to want to eat McDonald's hamburgers or Halliburton influencing the people to vote for politicians who will take us to wars where they will profit for feeding the troops. The Patriot Act proved that civil rights go to the highest bidder. As the government moves towards fascism in preparation for the collapse of the system, our rights are eroded away. The flawed capitalist system needs fascist laws to take away the freedom of people to be educated as to the truth of what is actually going on to protect itself from what will happen when the poor finally wake up to the truth of their own slavery. The notion that we should have to donate to people like Dennis Kucinich and Ron Paul in the first place is totally absurd. The fact that unless the supporters of these exceptional politicians happen to have enough money to push the agenda of civil rights and basic freedoms, those ideas will not even see the light of day, is also absurd. So should one be able to own the government? Of course not. But anyone who doesn't realize that the poor results experienced by politicians like Ron Paul, Dennis Kucinich, Mike Gravel, and even Ralph Nader is a glaring example that our governmental system is owned by the monetary system. It is basically, if you don't realize that, you're naive. And as long as there is a money system wherein the means by which people are exposed to given candidates and their ideas can be bought and sold, someone will always own freedom. Take a moment and seriously consider the implications of what this means. With the right money, you own the government. As a further manifestation of this problem, let's again consider patents. Originally, the concept of a patent was to protect an inventor from someone with more money capitalizing on their idea without giving them their own form of some, some form of compensation. This was a band-aid to an inherent flaw in the capitalist system that did serve a purpose at one time, but there were restrictions on patents. At one time, it was illegal, for example, to patent living organisms. Then someone was permitted to own freedom in the form of helping politicians get elected or stay elected who loosened patent laws on living organisms and many other things, including genetics. And we'll get into uh, the various ways that that manifests, but first I'm going to bring on my panelists to discuss how far we've gone so far. I'm going to start with you, Chidi. Do you have any comments so far? Uh, not particularly. You covered that one pretty well. Any uh, examples of what I'm talking about that you can consider or basically add to the conversation? Well, not without taking away from something you put later on in your blog, you know, the AIDS. Uh, the HIV immune well Right, or, yeah. We'll definitely get into that later. Uh, what about you, Dark Dancer? Or are you still there? <laughs> yes, I am. Sorry, I I couldn't find the um, unmute button so quickly. Pardon me. Well, no, I, I definitely want to hold out uh, until we can get on the specifics because there were quite a few uh, disturbing examples she used there that were, uh, well, disturbing from an observing point of view, not because what you wrote was disturbing. So I guess that we will make some, some very interesting information later on. Okay. Uh, any comments from you, Thunder? No, I'm with the other two. I'd like to hear more, and, and then we can go on. All right. Well, the one thing I think that was specific to what I had already mentioned was just to state that we can own politicians, um, that with the right amount of money you can do that. And I remember very distinctly during the course of my time uh, on radio shows about libertarianism, you know, and I pointed out that, well, should people have the right to, you know, bribe politicians? And they're like, well, it's not bribery, it's political contributions. I'm like, okay, well, if you're saying one doesn't mean the other, you know, even the Romans knew that if you bribed a senator, that actually bribing a senator was something that would get you executed in Rome. Um, and I'm not saying we should do that, but you get the point, is that you can own the government. You own it through owning the members of the government. 
And that, that's basically at that point, the, that's that illusion of democracy that Peter Joseph was talking about. Um, and uh, Jacques talks about it all the time. So in any case, we're going to move on to owning food. So in our monetary system, people often support themselves by selling food. On a smaller scale, the resource exchanges for this can be quite good for a local community. When this gets out of hand, you end up with companies like Monsanto, who will settle for nothing less than patenting all the world's seeds, and therefore, therefore could eventually own all the products and the uh, produce in the world. At first you're thinking, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, they patented, right? How did this start? Well, Monsanto started genetically modifying seeds for profit. Eventually, they were able to lobby, with money given to politicians, of course, owning freedom, to gain the right to patent their work. This led to eventually legalizing the patenting of living organisms. The story with Monsanto just gets worse, as they have been, allow been allowed to sue farmers who had the misfortune of Monsanto's patented, genetically altered crops finding their way onto the land by way of cross-pollination. In other words, carried by bees. The farmers in many cases were bound by court order to destroy their seed stores, which for a company like Monsanto that makes their money from selling seeds is of course good for them. Farmers retaining their own seeds and therefore not needing to buy more is of course not good for Monsanto. Right now, Monsanto is trying to lobby for international patent laws so that they can also sue people in other countries whenever their patented work finds its way into their fields. And this has already happened, actually. Um, in the documentary, Future of Food and the World According to Monsanto, uh, genetically altered crops are cropping, they're basically turning up in different places all over the world, just thanks to the fact that seeds move all kinds of different ways. But um, back to the article. Now, the Monsanto stuff aside, break it down to the most simple levels. Jacques Fresco described the Great Depression as a time when people were lying in the streets. The stores were still full of products, but nobody had the money to buy them. Consider for a moment the morality of allowing people to die of starvation when you're sitting on a stockpile of food. But it's your food, right? Obviously, I don't advocate that people should just be able to take food from someone who took the time to make it. However, I would say that we need to heavily consider the notion of making the basic needs of life into any profit-making venture. Because as soon as we allow it to be private property, it can be denied to people for any reason that person sees fit. All right, well, with owning food being the first example, I'm going to bring my panelists back on. I'll start again with you, Chibi. Do you have any comments? Uh, yeah, I think this one is especially, I, I mean, international scale already is a huge problem because you see that places where people are starving are actually exporters of food, which is it just doesn't even make sense. How can you have somebody starving and then the next door neighbor is, you know, has a, let's, just an example to visualize, you know, 10 acres of um, apples or oranges or something that they're just shipping, loading in trucks and taking it out, putting it on a boat, taking it to the U.S., something like that. It's just so ridiculous to see how that kind of thing happens. And that's how it is in a lot of poor countries where people are starving. Well, I definitely don't disagree with that. Um, was there was there anything further, or not really? I just think that that's I don't know. To me, that's the first thing that pops into my head when I think about owning the right to food. Right. It's All right. International. Thing, yeah. Well, definitely. Well, once it goes international, and it's really bad because then they're going to be able to sue like you know poor countries and just force them. To, the idea is is that if they own it, they're forcing you to buy from them. So. Um, right. So. Uh, all right, uh, Dark Dancer, do you have any comments? Yes, I found this part particularly disturbing, especially since 
it not only uh, goes to the extent that the farmers, uh, for example, would choose to use the seeds, uh, it would just go uh, by ways of logistics or cross-pollination would expand to to other farms in other places or other places that they grow food, and they would have the right to to charge something for the use of that while it came there not with intent from the farmers. I think that's usually disturbing. It's ridiculous. It makes me sick. Well, um, I agree with you there, and I was, you know, basically I, I think that, you know, when you, when you watch um, the documentaries that I mentioned earlier, uh, the stuff that they put those farmers through, it was very obvious that they were trying to send a message to farmers. You know, if you're not going to buy our seed, we'll find ways to get our seed into your seed and make you pay for it anyway. And when they made those farmers destroy their seed, it forced the farmers to buy more seed, not necessarily from Monsanto. But when you think about the fact that in addition to that, what Monsanto is working on now is they're working on um, genetically altered crops that will have a suicide gene that basically they will commit suicide after a single crop. This will you know, would radically change you know, the way all seeds are dealt with, because then at that point, nobody can keep seed, and you have to buy it from Monsanto. And of course, when they do stuff like this, they always claim that, well, don't worry, you know, our technology can't cross-pollinate. That is, of course, until they're suing you for cross-pollinated technology that ended up in your crops. Now imagine that these idiots, you know, put this Terminator gene in something, it cross-pollinates with the world's food supply, and then all of the plants on the earth decide that they're only going to, you know, put out one crop and die. You know, this is an example of the kind of insanity that goes through people's minds when they're, you know, as Peter put it, you know, part of a sick society where, where your, your profit motive is actually willing to override your common sense. Um, and, uh, all right, that takes me to Thunder. What comments did you have? Yeah, I, that last thing you said is just, I, I almost don't even have the words to describe how ridiculous that planned obsolescence has now delved into the food industry or is about to. Uh, I just don't even know what to say about that. That is so pathetic. Um, but there's another uh, thing I wanted to, I don't know if it is related to this, but um, it's been talked about uh, on several occasions by Jock and, and Peter about how uh, these farmers or these, these landowners are, instead of allowed to grow food on their land, they're forced to grow things like rubber, and tobacco and things that benefit them in no way, shape, or form just in order to keep their land. And I don't know if that's a factor in, in what you're trying no, to that say. Actually, well. That's actually a very good point because when you think about it, that means that we have starving people on the planet, but people on their private property, when there's a limited amount of arable land in the first place, are allowed to produce something like tobacco that is functionally useless. The notion that we're spending any resources on something like tobacco when there were people starving anywhere in the world is another example. Tobacco has no purpose other than profit. It is not nutritious in any way. It is entirely, essentially, just it's a, it's a profit crop. It doesn't bring you nutrition. If anything, it, you know, it harms your health. Now, obviously, you can't tell these people what to do on their private property. You know, and I'm not going to round up everybody's cigarettes and take them from them either. But when you consider the amount of resources and energy that are expended on tobacco, the tobacco industry is humongous. 
And then think about what would happen if we got all of the resources from the tobacco industry, just the tobacco industry alone, and applied that to food, you know, to actually feeding people. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Right, exactly. That's my point. Tobacco, even even coffee. I mean, I know people enjoy their coffee, but, you know, the nitty-gritty of it, it has no nutritional benefit uh, whatsoever, and I don't want to get into a whole nutrition conversation, but there's another... Um, you know, subsidized crop, I guess, that, that really doesn't need to take up so much land. This land could be used for so much better things. Uh, there's no reason people need to be starving in the, in the multitudes that they are, and it's just pathetic. No, I definitely don't agree. I, don't, I definitely don't disagree with you. Um, and I think one of the parts of this that's a bit harder to grasp that, you know, just by reading the blog, you know, what I've been trying to communicate is something that occurred to me that was kind of ethereal, is that we're talking about the morality of making things like this into a profit institution and the notion that that would be acceptable, that essentially you're, you're setting yourself up at that point for poverty because you're not treating the problem that is, the problem is people need food as a means by which to make money. You know. And, right, and let's, and let's not even talk about the thousands of acres, I'm sure there are of poppy fields, I mean, you know, do we right. even go there, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, but the, you know, that's an example for sure. Um, were you airing up, Chibi? Did I hear you? Oh, yeah, I was just going to add, I mean, what you said, your idea makes sense, but the thing is, within a monetary system, it wouldn't make sense. Look, we already meet the demand for food, because if there's no dollar sign next to the demand, then there is no demand, at least in the monetary equation. People who don't eat because they don't have money to buy food don't fit into the equation of supply and demand. So where we are now, we're sort of like, okay, there's enough supply of food to meet the demand of food. But that's simply because they're not accounting for people who don't have money to buy food. So making more food within a monetary system wouldn't mean anything if the people who needed it don't have the money to access it. That's actually a perfect point, and you're basically at that point totally exposing the free market capitalist attitude that, well, demand is entirely based on, you know, what people are trying to buy, and, you know, they tend to leave out the fact that their system does not provide for everybody to have money in the first place. And, in fact, you know, it, go, you know, it goes without saying that if you want to be rich, you try to make sure that you spend as little money on other people as possible. So that's, that's the wealth gap. Well, that's one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing this because I had just got done watching Peter Joseph's um, special on this subject of the wealth gap and how the wealth gap just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And that's only in their best interest is to continue to make the wealth gap bigger and bigger. You know, you get rid of union regulations as far as things like how little you can pay somebody, you know, things like that. You know, they already had the majority of the money anyway, and they just want to have more and more and more of it. And it doesn't occur to them that if they do that, they're, you know, the consumers themselves will not have any money to buy their products in the first place. You know, so... As you pointed out, supply and demand is obviously failing, or everybody would have food. But but on a monetary system, you can't. It's not possible. You're never going to be able to ever accurately describe supply and demand that way, which is hilarious because they always tell us that we're going to fail because we're not using the price mechanism. You know, the price mechanism leaves out a giant portion of the population. You know, just the statistics that are quoted at the beginning of Zeitgeist talk about that. You know. So, in any case, um, if anybody, does anybody have anything further? All right, I'll take that as a no. 
All right, we're going to move on to owning health. Okay. Um, patents rear their ugly heads again in the form of companies who patent medicine. And worse, they patent the genetics of human beings who are immune to certain diseases. When this is done, if a researcher wants to use these genetics in their research, they have to pay a fee to the company owning the patent or risk a lawsuit for trying to make something to aid humanity. Consider the morality of owning a critical piece of data that could save lives and therefore being able to profit from its use, or more importantly, to be able to refuse to let somebody to use it to save the lives of the world. Now, in an article published May 15, 2000 in the New York Times by Gina Collada entitled, Who Owns Your Genes? It was detailed that a few men were found to be completely immune to HIV because of a genetic mutation. As soon as this was discovered, companies involved, starting, uh, involved started pat getting patents on the genetics of these men. The men in question have to fight to get any of the money themselves that may arise to research using their own genes. So rather than coming together as a species to fight this threat to all humanity, we are wasting resources and time on finding out who gets the paycheck. So actually, I'm going to pull up this uh, article. The source article is linked in the blog post. Um, but I want to read a little bit of it here. Um, basically, the story was about a man. Um, over the next six years, Mr. Fuchs repeatedly got in touch with, oh, I mean, actually, I'll start from the beginning. Mr. Fuchs, who is gay, had 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 unprotected sex over the years with men who carried the virus. It stood to reason that he, too, would be infected. But to his astonishment, the test showed no evidence of the virus. And the quote says, I said, this has got to be wrong, Mr. Fuchs said. Uh, further says, then I looked at the test again, and I took it again, and I took it again, and the results never varied. Over the next six years, Mr. Fuchs repeatedly got in touch with AIDS researchers and asked them to study him to figure out why he seemed to be immune to the virus. But he said the scientists told him they were not interested. Finally, in 1994, Mr. Fuchs, still uninfected, tried again at a place he had approached earlier, the Aaron Diamonds Research Center in New York. This time, he said, the researchers agreed to study him. The result was dumbfounding. Try as they might in laboratory tests, the center scientists could not get the AIDS virus to enter Mr. Fuchs' cells. After months of fevered research, the scientists at Aaron Diamond discovered why Mr. Fuchs and, other man, and, and another man with similar experiences were immune. The men had inherited a gene that results in a blocked porthole with white blood cells into white blood cells, preventing the virus from slipping in. The investigators went on to isolate that gene, discover how it worked, and learn how many other people have it. On May 2nd, the research center was awarded a patent for a test to identify people who have HIV resistance gene, uh, allowing it to share any profits from the test. But what about Mr. Fuchs and the other man, Steve Cron? They say they approached Aaron Diamond scientists and suggested that they be studied. They offered their blood. They participated in the research project. They helped the research center garner publicity for its discovery. Quote, I just wanted to do something good, Mr. Fuchs said. But once money came into this picture, why not, should, why not should have it be shared with me? Of course, now he wants his own cut. These days, more and more patients are asking the same question. Laboratories offer tests for more than 700 human genes, with more being discovered almost daily. And for almost every gene, some medical institution or some company owns a patent on its use. The value of patients' tissues has potentially gone up enormously, said Barry, uh, said Barry Einstein, the Vice President for Science and Technology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. But Dr. Eisenstein said, patients whose cells provided the genes that have been patented are almost never compensated. Now, let's see, I'm just going to like more real, relative points here, but 
Somebody even says, I, have to, I hate to create incentives that would lead people to be greedy, said Rebecca Eisenberg, a patent law expert at University of Michigan. I am worried that there are just too many mouths at the feeding troughs of pharmaceutical products. <laughs> Imagine that. Let me go back to my blog now. Um, that article, actually, you should probably read the whole thing at some point because it's, it's really disgusting just how bad that gets because they go into legal battles over who gets to benefit from these genetics. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and read further. Now, consider for a moment what this means exactly. A cure for a disease that is killing thousands of people could exist in your own genetics. If you are not the owner of your own genetics, then you could, not, you could even be sued for daring to use your own genetics in research. I doubt that people really think about what the implications are. How many researchers could be working hard on the cure for AIDS who maybe just don't have the money to pay for the right to use what someone owns that could save lives? What kind of a person do you have to be, to be willing to hold back the vital information that could save thousands if not millions of innocent people to be sure you get money out of it? In this instance, we are not even talking about someone owning the rights of their own research. These are just scientists or other institutions who were fortunate enough to get to the patent office before anyone else did to claim ownership of genetics that are not even in their own bodies, all in the name of profit. So we move on to healthcare. Let's talk about healthcare. I don't even have to go into just how much money is made in the healthcare industry. Peter Joseph pointed out most eloquently the amount of money that is made in the cancer quote unquote treatment industry that made plenty of money causing my mother's kidneys to fail with chemotherapy leading to her death. It's the notion that someone can be denied care if they don't have the money. The notion that can, someone can own medical care, at care as if it is something to be bought and sold. Once again, I don't advocate forcing doctors or other medical institutions to work for free, but I would say that we very much need to consider this sort of thing as a problem for all of humanity to come together and solve. Medical researchers shouldn't have to be fighting for grants to survive. They also shouldn't be put into positions where they have to keep whatever company owns them in business by providing them with intentionally misleading research. So when I say intentionally misleading research, essentially I'm talking about different times when People have been asked to fudge uh, proof that certain products were safe, things of that nature. So, all right, I'm going to once again bring on my panelists. Uh, Chidi, you know, weigh in. Um, well, I disagree with uh, some of the things presented, like in the AIDS article, just reading through it. But um, just given the premise, um, if you believe this um, and, and you still, you know, treat it this way, it, it still stands that, yeah, they're using, you know, what they think could save millions of lives for profit motives. So it's pretty disgusting. I mean, that's pretty much all I can say there. I mean, I, I have my own opinions on how health works. but Well, um, I, you know, yeah, I see where you're coming from about even if it's just the premise. I know that there's an argument about whether or not HIV, HIV, HIV causes AIDS or whatever. But that, that irrelevant to the point is that if this, the precedent that is set here is that if, hi, my name is Neil, I happen to own the patent on the genetics that would cause us to say be immune to cancer. Now I have the right to deny other people to use this information to research a cure. Right, which is absolutely criminal. Yeah, and that's, people, and they, you know, that people who are supposedly freedom minded people will defend the right of these individuals to defend their ownership of something that could be critical to saving thousands, if not millions of people. 
So, um, do you have anything further, or should I move on to the next panelist? Dark Dancer. All right. Well, Dark Dancer, do you have any comments? Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, uh, this is just another very specific example uh, of how the profit incentive uh, has uh, a negative uh, influence on almost all sectors, but especially the medical uh, and pharmaceutical industry. I mean, there are numerous other examples that you that you can use for this. And I mean, this one is specifically interesting because it's uh, it's about a disease, uh, much like cancer and other diseases that are very um, sorry very apparent in our, in our society today. Uh, so I, I would say uh, this is just a continuation of the discussed from the last subject uh, that is posted within the same blog. I mean, this is even more horrifying, especially since it's, uh, there is a possibility. I mean, what TV what said is also, of course, true. I mean, there are different, different opinions about how, how health works and about how medicine could be applied. But the fact remains that uh, there are possibilities that these genes could lead to a cure and that people are fighting over the paychecks. I mean, uh, that's that's just one more example of of uh, showing where this world is headed and how much people will do for profit and they will stop at nothing, even if it yeah, could save the lives of so many people. Yeah, I guess the bottom line there is the fact that nobody seems to be worried about the implications or health or anything like well-being of people. They're worried about where the paycheck is. So I think that right there is the bottom line to it. Defo. Now... Um, Thunder, did you have anything further on this before I make another comment? No, not, I mean, not really. I mean, I think Chibi and Dark Dancer made good points. I just might add that, uh, you know, this is, again, just something that those of us that know and understand know that anytime you have a monetary system and a profit motive that floods into, for this example, the healthcare industry, um, there aren't going to be any cures because there is no profit in a cure. The profit is in the medicine. And we've said this, we've you know, quoted this rhetoric many times, and it just holds true and, and driving the point home until people realize that, uh, you know, all these pharmaceuticals and all these patchwork fixes for all these quote-unquote there for profit. They're not there to cure anybody and stop any of these diseases from happening, just to maybe ease the symptoms temporarily. So that's all I wanted to add. Well, for sure. And, uh, you know, think about, like, he was talking about how much money would be lost in the cancer industry. We could go even, like, you know, less, uh, like less fatal. We could talk about the cold industry. You know, think of how much money would be lost on NyQuil you know, various uh, drugs that people take to treat the, uh, the uh, symptoms of the common cold that returns every year. This right. Is a- the money, yeah, the money from the medicine itself, the money from the jobs of the people that are creating the medicine, you know, I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind on how much profit would be lost and how many jobs would be lost if they actually found solutions to these problems. Right. And as Roxanne pointed out um, in Zeitgeist Addendum, you know, if there's no money to be made in solving a problem, it won't be solved. And, you know, instead, you know, it's just like, you know, when you, when you think about that, you know, if we just stop ever, if there was a, the market for Sudafed, <laughs> you know, 
Uh, Sonia tabs, all the various companies dried up because somebody actually cured the common cold. You know, it's, it's probably a titanic amount of money, and that's why you're not going to see a cure. Um, and if somebody got one, you'd probably find that people would want to get rid of it. You know, it would get covered up or somehow in some way um, discredited. I mean, um, I don't know for sure if most of the stuff that the Gerson's therapy people talk about, that's one of the diets that's supposed to cure everything, um, but, you know, the stuff that they put, allegedly put that, that scientist through for finding ways of curing most ailments just through a good diet, you know, I don't know if that's all exaggerated or not, but that would definitely be something you could expect if you came up with a cure for cancer or AIDS. Um, so, and now, another thing that I was kind of getting at, which was kind of at the end here, and I'd, I'd forgotten to put this in the blog post, and I'm kicking myself, because back when I originally conceived this blog post, it was after I had um, watched the orientation presentation again with my wife, because I wanted her to uh, see the stuff about feral children. And um, actually, not orientation presentation, it was the London lecture. And uh, it pointed out that, you know, it talked about Janie and the feral children. My wife, obviously wanted to look into the whole feral children thing. And so she started studying. And this, this is another example. This kind of hits close to the home for the Zeitgeist movement, is that Jeannie, uh, the situation with her and how she became a feral child was due to her mother grossly neglecting her. Um, I guess apparently uh, her life was spent, for the most part, tied to a potty seat, um, as in literally tied down to a baby toilet so that the mother did not have to change any diapers. And um, in addition to that, locked in the room, all the other things that Peter had described. Now, we talk about how bad this is. We talk about how, you know, and the, the, the part of the story that was left out of what happened to Jeannie is that, yes, they did try to rehabilitate her. Yes, they did try to help her. But the money for the program that was helping Jeannie ran out. And if you can believe this crap, they gave Jeannie back to her mother because there was nowhere else for her to go. You know, after she did this to her child, there was no money to take care of her. So people owned, you know, owning the means by which Jeannie could, should be able to live, owning life, were able to deny Jeannie any further um, assistance because Jeannie didn't have any money. That's an example of how people get refused to be treated. You know, they can be, you know basically not refused to be treated, but refused treatment. Now, um, I mean, with that little piece of information, do you guys have any comments on, you know, what happened to Jeannie? That's just inhuman. That's just, uh, that's unbelievable. I feel completely the same. That's uh, ridiculous. And um, I think after your show, I'm going to puke. <laughs> Anything from you, Chidi? Um, I'm not surprised. That's all I can say, I guess. Yeah, that's, once again, owning life. You know, these people who had the ability to take care of her, you know, they owned all of that, so, you know, all of the benefits that she was getting, so therefore they were able to deny them. And I'm sure there are plenty of people who felt bad for the girl. The fact is, though, is that we shouldn't be looking for money to treat situations like that. It, it shouldn't be something that anybody should be profiting from. It shouldn't be something that anybody should be considering earning money by doing. It should be common decency, something that you do for the good of humanity. And Absolutely. No, I, I agree. It's, it, it's disgusting. It's just disgusting because, you know, this is a prime example of the insane society that we live in. Yep, I agree. Um, 
Now, I've opened the, the switchboard. If anybody wants to call in during the course of this to chime in on any of these topics, by all means, please do. The phone number is 347-945-7747. That's 347-945-7747. I've also put it in the chat. Um, if anybody wants to call in or give any comments, uh, you're more than welcome to join us in this conversation. Once again, thank you for tuning in to V Radio. Um, we're going to uh, continue with the blog. Uh, now, owning the truth. What I mean by owning the truth is owning the media. We approach our media as money-making institutions. We have already addressed how the profit motive basically turns to bile anything it touches. Consider for a moment how much money is made in the media industry. And also consider that people can own large quantities of the industries that bring us our news and information. This gives them immense amounts of power. They determine what politicians we hear. They determine what products we hear about. They determine what perspective on world events is shared with us. The ability to control what politicians are heard before elections ensures control over who gets into government. The ability to control what perspective we see in world events allows them to control the public's perspective on wars, the environment, terrorism, etc. Free market enthusiasts will tell you that this is all balanced by the public, that we as consumers can ensure that the news is not fraudulent. I'm going to once again point out uh, Chibi's excellent point, is that they basically feel that we can vote with our dollar. I guess that means people who don't have any money don't get to vote in the free market capitalist system. But uh, I continue. Because after all, if it, isn't, if it isn't good news, we can just change the channel and that media outlet will be forced to shape up. I find this concept highly naive. The average consumer is not going to be able to head to the front lines in Iraq to verify whether or not troop deaths or civilian casualties are being accurately reported. The average consumer is not going to be able to personally investigate every company that released a dangerous product who happens to have the fortune of owning interest in the media. Example. Watch the documentary Outfoxed, Rupert Murdoch's War on Journalism, for details of Monsanto covering up an investigative report into their use of harmful growth hormones on cows to enhance milk production through using their money to influence Fox. If you own a news station, do you have the right to lie to the public? The funny thing is, in the example I just offered, they took the matter to court and found that apparently it is not illegal to print or release false news. But if you happen to have the money to make your news outlet shiny and attractive to the consumer eye, they will trust you. So is it moral for people to own the news? Or should events of interest to mankind be something free of the profit motive? So I'm going to call on my panelists again. Chibi, do you have comments on owning the media? Um, we could spend a lot of time talking about this subject, but I, I agree that's a great documentary. And it is, as you said, I'm really naive that people, um, especially like the liberals that think that, you know, the consumer is going to make the choice and force things to bend to their will, which it's ridiculous, especially when it comes to media, because nobody votes. I mean, changing the channel doesn't automatically take a dollar away from them and give it to somebody else. It doesn't really work that fluidly. And even if it did, um, if every channel has the same bullshit on, then, I mean, you're still going to have your understanding shaped to fit that bullshit, basically. Definitely. You know, and I actually don't even mind if we talk on these subjects longer because this is a two-hour show. <laughs> and we've been oh, going through these pretty fast. 
So by all means, if you want to add anything about what we've said so far, please do so. Um, oh, yeah. I didn't know that you had extended it. Well, I mean, ownership of truth, uh, to me, that kind of screams, it, it really, ownership of information, uh, the transfer of information. And I think that in itself is a huge topic, and it goes into education, it goes into parenting and all these different areas, not just the media. But the media is a great example because you can see the money in it. But um, ownership of information and uh, what is what somebody believes to be true, I think, well, I'll, never mind. I was going to take that somewhere into a rant, but uh, I'll... Go ahead, rant. Let go. <laughs> well, I was thinking about that story I was telling you earlier, um, you know, as far as um, ownership of truth. Well, how to segue that. Um, when somebody indoctrinates uh, their children, for example. Um, I, I guess that's sort of the same topic. You, People kind of take an ownership aspect to their children. Uh, and I don't mean that just semantically when somebody just says, oh, it's my child, I choose what my child hears and sees and knows. Uh, it's not just a semantical thing um, that they're saying my child. They really, people really do treat it as an ownership thing. They control what information their children get to hear and make sure it fits in with what they find to be acceptable, which kind of stems down from what they were taught. So there's, you know, kind of a cycle there. And um, I noticed recently, for example, uh, a niece of mine, she's only like six years old, and, uh, you know, we were out eating, and she had this eraser that said, I love Jesus, and she was so excited to show it to people, and um, her parents were like, oh, look at her. She's so on fire for Jesus. And I just thought, six years old, really, on fire for Jesus. I just thought that was a ridiculous thing. Like, she doesn't even know what that means, that, you know, it's just basically what she's being taught. But if I were to say anything that contradicted that, then they wouldn't want me to talk to her anymore. I would be, it would be very offensive for me to say anything, to provide any information that didn't fit with what they wanted her to hear because they're controlling what information she gets. Right. As far as they can, anyways. No, and I have an example, actually, that goes along with that, if you don't mind me taking it, Mike, yeah, for just a moment. Um, I, I believe I've described this in some of my previous V Radio shows. I don't know if they were zeitgeist-oriented, so I don't know if you even heard this story, but it's the story of me uh, going to court with the Inquisition. At least that's what I called it. But my wife's ex uh, has custody of their daughter, and um, at one point, the conversation turned to uh, religion. And because my wife at the time was a pagan, uh, her, he suddenly developed, uh, found God as his latest excuse for trying to deny uh, visitation rights. And in some, in some states, you can actually, if you don't approve of your uh, ex's religion, you can just flat out deny them. Uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, you're Jewish, I'm Christian, you don't get to see the kids. Um, I, I was actually astounded to hear that that was true. Um, and I had to do a lot of my own research because we couldn't afford a judge, but I remember during some of the course of the phone conversations when my wife was arguing with him about it, you know, she's like, well, what if, you know, she's 14 years old and finds a book about Wicca and wants to learn about it? And he said, well, I will ensure that she is never exposed to that. She will have no opportunity to ever see it. And, you know, at that point, it's a very chilling moment because they are totally, uh, you know, it's, it's like, 
uh, it occurred to me, like, well, you know, if, if your religion is so wonderful, then why do you have to make sure that <laughs> in order to indoctrinate somebody to it, that you have to make sure they're not exposed to anything else ever? You know, and that I think that plays into what you're talking about. Am I right? Yeah, definitely. And it's funny because they can contradict their views um, going back and forth if you get into that discussion with them. But Yes. And it's, yeah. you know, and it's when you think about it, that's what they're doing to us. The government wants to own, or, or the well, more specifically, I say the government, but you know, the rich people want to own what their peasants, meaning us, are exposed to. Yeah. <laughs> what ideas do we get to hear? Well, whatever they want us to. And if you have the money, you get to decide, you know, what other people see. So, um, I guess my point to that, I was going to go on this long rant, but it's, it's, it's like a psychological state of mind with property and how we even treat each other as property to some degree. Um, and there's a lot of hierarchy, uh, hierarchy, what's the word I'm thinking of, hierarchical type of thinking uh, involved there where we, you know, ownership of spouses, ownership of children, things like that, where we try to control what those, uh, control what people think, especially with children, and control what people do as spouses and things like that. And, and it creates a lot of uh, really bad side effects handling things that way. And I, I don't know, I think property in general is going to change a lot in the future. And it's going to make us question the way we treat others as well if we're not treating them as property. So I, I guess that was where I was going with that, and somehow I thought that might. No, no, it, it was certainly relevant, because you're talking about, that, that very much, you know, factors in, and we, we gave, basically gave it that example, and it brought us back to the fact that the, the elite who are benefiting from this system of, you know, with, with the wealth gap, have an agenda that includes ensuring what the peasants hear, and one thing I will give, uh, people have asked me to review uh, Capitalism, a Love Story, uh, when Michael Moore uh, released those memos being exchanged by various Walmart executives about the dead peasant program, which was them taking out uh, insurance policies on employees who don't even know about it. They referred to it as the dead peasant program. Um, and when they're referring to us as peasants, it really you know puts things into perspective. And you know there's a reason why fascist uh, countries burn books and things of that nature is because they want to have control over the thoughts of the people involved. And that's actually why Jacques Fresco, when he deals with children, talks about how children need to be educated to critically think, to evaluate, and to think for themselves at all times. And that will lead to a society where pulling a fast one like the Nazi party will never work because everybody will be too intelligent, too aware, thinking entirely too critical for anything like that to ever take hold. Um, so once again, on owning the media and owning the truth, I move on to Dark Dancer. All right, thanks. Yes, uh, it did go on a, in quite a tangent, and that's uh, pretty good. I enjoyed listening to it. Uh, back to the original point. Um, I mean, I think there is some sort of sense in what the... the the opponents from the Boston Dean Party had to say uh, uh, about this uh, specific uh, part of uh, the system. I mean, of, of course, the public's opinion would be able to do something, but I think that the major problem is and lies within the critical thinking of people 
because most people are too busy with their own lives and own jobs and their own things, issues they have to deal with, that they actually have little care for what information is provided as long as they have something to watch. I mean, I know that sounds pretty pathetic, but I think that's actually the state we're in right now. People don't really care about pondering where this news is coming from as long as there's something provided to them that they can call news. I think that's the state of affairs that we're in right now. Well, yeah, and the practicality, like, you know, the one I pointed out was the most extreme, but, you know, is the average consumer going to go, hmm, I don't know if Fox is reporting what's going on in the Iraq war well enough. I guess I better get on a plane to Iraq, <laughs> head on over there, and see for myself what the troop casualties are. That's never going to happen. You know, how are we supposed to quality check that? You know, they always assume there's going to be consumer advocacy groups or whatever, but if they're all profit-motivated too, because everybody's profit-motivated in a free market system, how are we going to trust them? Yes, we can't, and, and that's the whole problem of it, of course. I mean, it would be ridiculous having to double-check on everything because, indeed, in the current system that we live in, we actually we all have to tend to our own businesses uh, uh, or things we have to deal with in our daily life, which consumes a lot of time. Of course, that's a whole different subject that, that we could uh, talk about. But, um, I mean, in, in, in short, it, it definitely comes down to having too little time to check on this, and we have to trust on the information being provided. And when that's controlled by a select group of people, and, of course, I, I really, really always do advocate not talking of a day, but there is indeed a group of people, uh, especially in the corporate world, who have the majority of ownership within these media companies. And these media companies distribute down to uh, more levels, which cover almost uh, a very large number of of all the media that's in the world aside from the so-called independent media who we don't know how independent they actually are. So, I mean, the information provided is almost entirely one way. Uh, and, and if consumers who don't have the time to evaluate this information see the same information in all the networks, they assume it's true. So it's, it's just a big hoax. One thing I would add to that is it's with the media, it's not just that the statistics they give you may or may not be accurate. It's really the premise that gets slid by you that people don't even notice and don't even want to notice, like the reason we're in the war in the first place, for example, and what are we doing over there? What kind of progress are we making? What is the goal exactly? These kind of premises sort of just go unnoticed, and people don't really think about that. It's not really presented in, in most media. No, it's definitely not. And, you know, I think that it, you know, one of the reasons why it was difficult for me to separate all these different categories is because they're so tied in. Like Monsanto is actually mentioned, I guess, in three different categories or is at least related because the, the question that was brought up on the Fox uh, documentary was the subject of Monsanto using dangerous growth hormones in their cows to, to uh, aid in milk production. Uh, having been a dairy farmer, I remember this very distinctly because my father refused to do this to our cows and it put us out of business. You know, so much for the notion that doing that's bad for business and you're going to you know, fail in your business if you do that. We didn't do that to our cows and that's why we failed. Now, this is an example of them owning food 
Now, how does that branch into owning the media? Well, they used their money to influence people who owned the television station that was doing the report, uh, it was called The Investigators, on Monsanto's use of this, illegal, of this dangerous growth hormone that's linked to cancer. Um, and through their money, they were able to bury the story. And that's an example of how they own the truth. You're never going to hear about that. You know, basically, initially, they, would in, they didn't just bury it. They you know, went out of their way to have it modified, and they, they changed all sorts of wording. You know, yeah, we'll air the story as long as you get rid. Let's not say cancer. Let's say potential health risks. Yeah, that was one of the modifications they forced them to make. And that's how people own the truth. Because at that point, you're never going to hear about it. You know, and if you try to do anything about it, well, they fired them. You know, and of course, those people will never work in media again because they, you know, stood up to the man, so to speak, you know, for daring to not do what their bosses said and covering up the bad news. This, this is the Orwellian stuff that they're always trying to say about the Venus Project. They say, oh, it sounds kind of Orwellian. You know, well, the, the thing that I have pointed out before that is more insidious about this, I say it all the time, is that it is more insidious that this is being controlled this way because of the fact that um, you don't know about it. it. It's not as obvious. It's not, you know, something that's in your face. You really have to dig to find out that, this, that, a, that an entity is controlling the media in this way. You have to look very closely. You know, uh, it's not like it is in, say, communist China when they decide to black something out. You know, it's obvious the government did it. In our situation with the capitalist system, the, you know, the same elites that control everything can do it from the shadows, and they can do it with their checkbooks. They don't even need guns. And to me, that's a lot more scary. So I'm going to bring this on to Thunder. What did, you, did you have anything further to add? No, I think you guys covered it well. I enjoyed listening to all the, all the different analogies and stuff. So continue on, please. Okay. Um, one thing I want to apologize for the kid noise in the background. I do this show in my living room. Um, <laughs> so in any case, um, we're going to move on to uh, – unless did anybody else have any further comments? guess not. All right. Now I kind of get to the, the, the end, um, which is owning life. Now, I remember one of the loudest opponents of my resource-based economy caucus in the Boston Tea Party calling, called it the Death Camp Caucus because of his feeling that any attempt to distribute resources would fail without the price mechanism and that this would eventually lead to death camps when we would supposedly have to exterminate large quantities of the populace to make up for the lack of resources. Um, I guess I would say that there are already death camps. These camps are not organized by fascists with guns, at least not obviously. They are organized by medical institutions who refuse to treat people who cannot pay. They are organized by the food industries who refuse to feed people who cannot afford to pay. They are organized by rich companies who knowingly increase the wealth gap, forcing people into poverty by eliminating jobs to maximize profits, intentionally rendering an ever-increasing portion of the population unable to pay for the services I just mentioned. As I have always said before, I'm going to go have to go with this again, but the insidious thing about the evils of capitalism is that these death camps are invisible. The agenda of the new being, uh, of, of the few being weighed over the many is not as obvious as Nazis rounding up people and putting them into gas chambers. 
It is buried under mountains of red tape and other distractions in the media. And the funny thing is, they say that it's the only fair way that this, you know, to elaborate further on this point, they say the only fair way to determine who gets resources is through this free market rap, you know, rat race system where everybody just gets to fight over everything. That's the best way to do it. And those people who are left outside of it, well, you know, at least it's not death camps. You know, rather than being exterminated in gas chambers due to overpopulation, we'll just let them starve to death or not get adequate medical care or not get adequate nutrition because that's the only fair way. Now, I go on to, I am reminded of the movie Spaceballs, where a group of fascists decide to solve the problem of a lack of breathable air on their planet by trying to take it from the other planets. I was wondering the other day how long it will be before there is a new utility company in the form of a service that pumps breathable air into your home for profit, because the environment was destroyed in the name of profit of the companies that save money destroying the Earth. Can you imagine getting your air bill in the mail along with your electric and gas bill? Can you imagine being unfortunate enough not to be able to pay it, your air bill? Ah, but these air companies own the clean air. You can't ask them just to give it to you. The same is obviously true of clean water. As clean drinkable water becomes more and more scarce, it won't be long before the profits in, the, in this industry skyrocket. You know, Peter pointed at that during his presentation when he keeps pointing to bottled water. He puts pictures of bottled water right next to pictures of polluted water. And it becomes very clear at that point that maybe the reason why we're polluting the environment is because it's creating a whole other industry. And you've got to remember, these industries that are for things that are not optional are the most profitable because you cannot choose not to eat. You can't just decide, well, you know what? I don't like the price of your food. You know, I'm just going to choose not to eat. You know, and then they'll sell you, well, there'll be you know, competition. People will sell theirs for a little bit less. That's, that's assuming that they're not using the cooperative monopoly system that I talked about earlier, wherein companies get together as a cartel and decide, well, we may compete by a few cents, so to speak, but uh, overall, we all want to make a lot more money and increase the wealth gap. So we agree to, you know, basically to raise the overall price of our products. The gas companies is what I described this about earlier. About during the gas crisis, everybody was competing for like maybe two to three cents, if that. Everybody was selling their gas for ridiculous prices. The competition was, you know, was almost at, uh, impossible to even notice. So now I finish with, I say it's time for mankind to stop making the needs for survival into profit-driven dri businesses. I say it's time for mankind to consider how this will inevitably lead to corruption of these institutions. And if this cycle continues, all the money they made will be useless when the earth is given over to the cockroaches. So now I'm going to open the floor pretty much for open discussion. I'm going to get everybody an opportunity to speak individually first. I'm going to start with you, Chidi. Uh, let's let Thunder go first. All right, Thunder, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get to go first. I, yeah, you've know, been kind of, talking, yeah, man. You're yeah. slacking. I know. Well, I was kind of saving this for the end so to, to wrap it up, but I think if we really look hard at, as we do to so many of these problems at the root, um, what is the root of all this need for ownership? And I think it stems from fear because, you know, in relationships, uh, owning a person, a child, a wife, girlfriend, food, 
whatever the case may be, I think it all boiled down to a fear-based um, problem in that, you know, I need to own it because the fear is, is if that I don't own it, someone can take it away. And getting into the profit thing, you know, take it away and make money off of it, and then I can't do that anymore. So I must own it before somebody else owns it because my fear is somebody else is going to make the money on it and not me. Right. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that your, your point um, also branches into that whole thing we were talking about. What is the, what is the, where does the instinct to be greedy come from? You know, the notion of gathering everything up. It's just like, you know, when we use the example of the squirrel that gathers way more nuts than it could ever possibly need for winter is the fear of scarcity. Um, and, you know, overall, though, uh, one of the major reasons that I brought this up is that I don't think that a lot of people even really consider, you know, I know for me, for example, I always thought that if I ever won the, the lottery, that I would not really feel right about holding on to a bunch of that money because where I live, there's all sorts of homeless people and stuff. I just, the notion that I could sit there and, you know, eat pizza or whatever, you know, while my fellow human beings are starving to death. People are very good at keeping that out of their, their minds. They're very good at ignoring that, uh, pretending that it's not going on right in front of them. Does this mean that we should set up a system, like a socialist system, where you're obligated to help take care of everybody even if they're lazy? No, not, obviously not. That doesn't work either. We've already exposed that. Now, what, you know, however, creating a self-sustaining system that uses automation and superior technology to take care of the planet and the people on it, that sounds solid to me. And since we're going in reverse order, I'm going to pull up Dark Dancer. All right, thank you. Yes, yeah, so well, I've been certainly been itching to comment about this subject in particular. Uh, one thing that, that came to mind when assessing this whole situation that is presented is that uh, if we look at it from, from a perspective and, and assume that uh, the whole profit incentive has nothing to do with uh, some sort of uh, bad um, intention of people. I think this is a symptom that we can compare with, uh, I don't know if it's the correct uh, English phrasing for this, but some sort of social evolution which is not very progressive. I mean, if we compare this back to uh, older times or, well, somewhere in history, I mean, people would com compete for these resources as well. Uh, going back to hunter-gatherer times, I mean, uh, if, you, if you were the major hunter in your group and you collected um, the most meat and uh, killed the most animals, you would have the most, uh, sorry, you would have the most stuff to eat, so to say. Your tribe would profit from it as well. Of course, that's to be taken separate. Uh, but you would ha have a certain status and a certain security that you wouldn't be kicked out of the tribe. Uh, of course, taking this into a larger pers per perspective and comparing this to present-day uh, uh, social orders and how everything is uh, arranged, then I think that if we compare it, uh, then perhaps the big corporations um, and the people behind it uh, have the same motiva motivation as these hunters from the early days. They just want to be at the top of the of the game and be certain that one they have all the research they have they need 
they think they need access to and be can never be in a position of disadvantage and is uh, and don't really realize uh, some people do some people don't that the gap they're creating in wealth is so detrimental to our to our world and to all the people living on it i mean i think that the survival need which is of course false but might be justified in their way of thinking is basically the main motivator for this and is driving them to behave the way they do well right and that's actually what i was trying to get at was that you know i definitely don't advocate that we should just expect people to provide for lazy people or just expe- you know that people should just expect to be fed with no work or no effort on their part it's more of a matter of we should definitely be approaching these things as problems that all mankind has you know uh, jacques points them out all the time in his lectures the 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 things that everybody needs you know good nutritious food arable land uh shelter etc you know the most basic needs that when you get into a, a system where those things can turn be turned into profitable businesses you you go along with all of the things that come you know all the corruptions that come with that you know we've seen that you know you know the, the, and it it all it leads together that's why it's like you know i was like wow do i put this uh this part about the media do i put this in with the the owning food part do i put it in the media part do i need to create a whole other category because it all links together the money system just it's it's the reason why when you're talking about the venus project you end up going on so many tangents is because the money system infects everything the corruption that's laid into it infects everything you know monsanto wants to own food so much to the point that they also own the any media that decides to speak negatively about them as a company you know that's an example of just how bad this gets and as long as you're going to have a money system that's going to use you know to be, allow people to do this you know because that's the thing free market capitalists argue you should be allowed to do whatever you want with your money you know if that's the case especially if you're going to try to have this ridiculous notion that we're going to have a republic of elected representatives you know that's just not going to work you know it's never going to work you know for the reasons that you know uh, Jacques and Peter pointed out more than once as as long as the money decides you know it's it's just another system that's the funny thing is the more i think about it it's it's just another veil for for the elite to be able to continue to do what they've been doing since the days of the royalty you know there's a new royalty uh the the royalty you know the royal families of microsoft monsanto disney uh you know the the major companies that we know do evil things these are basically royal families so to speak you can get in with them but if you do you basically have to sell your soul to them and you know they and they think of us as peasants i i hear somebody else queuing up yeah sorry i just wanted to really comment really quickly about that before we move on to cheese sure. i i mean um what what you just said i i mean there you you encounter these people who have these arguments uh, in advocating this system of free market i i would really like it if you could bring them up here once with us, to discuss this with us because i mean i don't want to offend anyone but how retarded is it to actually <laughs> be able to think that this is fair in a way let let me put a a very classic example of this in into the current uh, light and subject take africa i mean i encounter all kinds of people who 
who act like it's an accident that the Africans are poor and they have no uh, methods to join in this free market system because they don't have the money to spend. They they think that this all is uh, some weird coincidence that the Africans can uh, join in this and we have to help them and that, that we are doing a very good job in aiding them with all the funds we send in there. No, it's just compensation for all the plundering we've done on that continent. I'm not trying to say that Africa or the African people or the people who live there is perhaps the best wording have had nothing to do with the problem themselves, but I could argue that the most important factor here is is that we as Western nations, and I say we because I live in a Western nation and I have also lived the profits of the, the good economic situation we are in because we have been abusing these countries, even if I have a uh, Asian, which isn't the richest continent anymore as well, uh, and um, Middle East background, I am part of a Western country and I'm fully aware of all the plundering we have done in that part of the world. And of course, I don't want to rant uh, on about that uh, for too much time. So getting back to my original point, how could anyone argue that they uh, that this system is fair in a way that we're excluding these people who have, who, whose land we have abused and are still abusing for resources so that they can have access to the same means we have in terms of education and jobs to compete in the same system and say that it is fair or the fairest way to distribute wealth. It's absolutely ridiculous. Well, you know, we actually did a great show on that topic, um, and it's listed in the archives. We brought on a guy uh, to, to represent more specifically probably the most uh, rabid of the free market capitalists are the anarcho-capitalists who advocate no government uh, and capitalism on top of that which means absolutely no regulatory body whatsoever. Everything is to the highest bidder. Um, and he, he tried to defend himself, and he did well, but, I mean, it's, it's still, I think that that argument went pretty well for us. I mean, Chidi was there, Paradigm was there. I, I can't remember if Thunder was there. Uh, but in, in any case, um, I would point out that uh, in addition to what you're talking about, you know, as far as, like, how these people think, you know, is that, it is kind of like, you know, it, Peter's now comparing it the same way I did before. It's almost religious because it's, because it's not very rational. So, you know, for people to think that this is ever going to be fair, it, I guess fair to them is that they have the option to fight for everything. Um, I guess they define that as freedom. So I'm going to go ahead and turn over the mic to Chibi now since uh, you're up, buddy. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'd can't really think of exactly what to say. I was thinking when Dark Dancer mentioned Africa and what he was saying. I got an interesting lecture on that, but I can't find it on my computer right now to make a. Oh, reference. you know what? I had a comment about that too, and I had forgotten. So let me take a second and go ahead and do that while you're thinking. Um, it is odd to me that this is another thing when we talk about well, those because they, they usually say well, those people in Africa, you know, if they just worked harder, they'd be fine. You know, those people in Central America, if they just worked harder, they'd be fine. If those people in South America worked harder, they'd be fine. Now, we know through watching uh, Jim, you know, Jim per you know, John Perkins talk about the you know, Confessions of Economic Hitman, that that's just ridiculous. Um, these countries, this is the really funny thing about the way the United States works. Okay, the United States does not really have a lot of the resources to make people rich. Otherwise, we wouldn't be getting oil from the Middle East. We wouldn't be 
you know, getting our diamonds from Africa, we wouldn't be planting all of our fruit in South America on the arable land down there. You know, and that's basically what it amounts to is, is that um, Africa, for example, has the majority of the diamonds in the world. So why the hell are all the African people starving? Well, that's because we, um, you know, the elite, essentially, the United States, figures out ways to go in and to get control of all the diamonds in these countries. It, it, you know, if you think about it, what if the African people actually claimed all of the diamonds that are in their land and used them to create a self-sustaining environment for themselves? I mean, obviously, we're never going to let that happen, but, but you get the point. I mean, you know, is that it's almost dangerous to us to let these countries become independent because then not only are they going to be sitting on all the diamonds and all the oil and everything else we want, they're also going to be capable of taking care of themselves and not need our help anymore. And that is certainly not in the elite's best interest. And that's one of the reasons why I think that this notion, well, free market capitalism is going to bring freedom to everybody is absurd because the people who have all the money are already actively using economic hitmen and the military and the governments to prevent these people from doing it. And they say, well, then what if we got rid of government? And then I say, well, that's actually worse because then they don't even have to pretend anymore. They can just show their true colors because in those systems without government, the anarchists describe always have, well, you can hire your own security forces. And I'm like, oh, okay. So therefore, if I have more money, I get to hire more security forces. And I guess that means that, well, now I have the biggest army I'm not in any way hindered by any government, so now I just take whatever I want. You know, they, they tend to leave out the, the final conclusion that's inevitably going to happen there. So did you have any comments on that, Jeannie? Uh It tied into that. I, I can't find it now. It must be in my other computer that's down right now. But there was a really great lecture about why it's, it was called Why is Africa Starving? And um, it mentions, like, for instance, the landmass compares to Africa is larger than China, the U.S., most rich European nations, uh, India, all these different places put together. And the population is like, what, under 700 million or something like that. And then they, they add up all the statistics and they say, well, it's the most underpopulated landmass, technically speaking, you know, in comparison. So mm -hmm. it's not that they're uh, overpopulated. It's not that they don't have arable land and they showed all the statistics on that. And it's not that they don't have wealth because the resources that are shipped out from Africa is huge, right? So why are they poor? And it goes into it, and uh, it's basically just the wealth. The people who live there don't own their own resources. <laughs> it's owned by um, international companies and corporations, not by the people that live on the land. So uh, I guess... Or as I, Allison I from Story of Stuff would say, the third world, which is just another word for how... There are stuff that got onto someone else's land. <laughs> yeah, somehow. Continue. Right. Well, yeah, that's basically what, but it was interesting, the analysis he did, and, and actually that what, you know, why Africa is starving. Uh, I I don't remember it all that well, so it sucks to comment on, comment on it and not have the author now because I can't remember it, but. Well, no, you I mean, still made a good point, even if you didn't have the author, but it would be nice at some point in the future. I'll, I'll let people know what it is you're talking about if you find it, if you don't think of it during the show. Right. It was on my media bot on the Ventrilo, and now um, that computer's off right now, so I have to turn that on and see if it's on there. I want to take a moment, actually. This is another thing that I forgot to bring up. Actually, I've been forgetting to bring up consistently. Something else you can do to help V-Radio 
um, is those of you who have Blog Talk radio accounts, um, particularly when you listen to the archives, you can rate the show uh, one to five stars. I, ironically, despite the fact that I have a huge listener base, nobody has bothered to rate the show. Um, if you rate the show you know, very well, then people who might just be stumbling around looking for something to listen to are more likely to, to listen to a show with a high rating, just like a YouTube video with a high rating. So if you guys you know, can log in, um, create a Blog Talk account, it's free, and rate the show, uh, you can definitely help me uh, further you know, awareness of B-Radio, getting people to check out the show at random. We actually have a couple of new listeners in the chat room right now. We have a big shout-out to Atheist Radio, um, who just showed up. Um, now, um, I guess at this point, uh, I, I thought that maybe the conversation was going to go on a lot longer. We have like 39 minutes remaining. Um, we still have, you know, if people have some more comments to bring up, I'll be absolutely keep continue the conversation um, on the subject of owning life uh, and exactly what it is that I was getting at was that human beings need to come together to treat these collective issues as problems that all humanity is responsible for. Um, you know, otherwise we're going to end up with fascists like Lord Helmet showing up, and I would prefer not to have to deal with his Schwartz. But <laughs> you get the idea. Um, so, uh, Thunder, Dark Dancer, GB, anything further? I'm actually good. I think you. I, I was expecting a one-hour show. I didn't know you had extended it. So um, when I saw the hour coming up and then realized that we were going longer, I was... Uh, like, okay, how are we going to fill this next hour? But I, I'm good. I mean, I think we've covered some very good topics. I personally, at this point at least, don't have anything more to add, but I'll turn it over to the other two. Dark Dancer? No, I think I think indeed that um, we have covered a lot, but you mentioned something about the chat. Are there questions from there? Perhaps we, we could have... Uh, um, no, there's been kind of like comments... Uh, Atheist Radio had said, oh my gosh, if you really feel like this about greed, I could introduce you to some people who would make you physically ill. They own hundreds of rental houses and, uh, and are without conscience. One of them killed baby kittens that were born in his shed. He can't get in trouble for it because he has high political connections. The same guy did something intentionally that almost resulted in my death, meaning the person in question's death. Greedy people appear to also have sociopathic tendencies. That is a dangerous combination when evil, you know, mean people end up with all the money and power. Of course, one of the requirements for becoming filthy rich is being ruthless. Um, and uh, I pointed out to him that that's one of the major, really important things that uh, Peter po uh, pointed out during his London lecture was that, that the psychology involved, you know, with people who are willing to do these things for the sake of profit, you know, of owning life, you know, and that's, that's another thing really about owning life that I was thinking about too, was that when they own your job, um, they have total control over you. This is the, the lack of freedom that you get, the fact that you walk into a dictatorship when you go to work. They own your life. You can either do whatever they want or you can get fired. Um, and generally there are some laws to deal with this. But like, for example, not long ago, my wife working at a restaurant was told, um, well, you have to do the dishes before you leave, and you have to clock out right now, or you're going to get um, overtime, and we can't allow that. So she's like, okay, well, if I have to clock out right now, how am I going to do the dishes? And they said, um, well, you have to do the dishes before you leave, which is a interesting, subtle little way that companies like Walmart, for example, get people to work for free. 
Um, it actually is something you can get a serious lawsuit against you for, so don't ever put up with this. My wife actually is putting together all the information she needs now because she has her clock out slips about where they would edit her uh, paycheck to get rid of any overtime she worked. Um, it, it's in, sorry to cut you off. It's interesting okay. that you okay. mentioned this because I actually uh, have worked at a union uh, that represents people working in restaurants and bars, so I'm pretty familiar with what you're talking about. So I gave people legal advice based on these issues, and it's really uh, horrifying uh, all the things that you hear. Because I used I used to work at um, uh, what what you could call uh, oh, sorry a service desk something combined with legal uh, legal advice. So basically, all day long I would get emails and calls about all the things that that employees are faced with. And the the thing you mentioned is almost like a classical example. This happens not only to your wife, and I know you're fully aware of it, but a lot of people uh, might not be or might be. I mean, depends on what kind of environments you're working in because there are a lot of companies who are uh, with well-intentioned people and well-intentioned bosses who won't do anything like this. But uh, getting back to the mean people comment, uh, yes, it might be that mean people do this to their employees, but um, it's also people who might not even be that mean, but it's just a dirty tactic from, from companies to get this free time, as you mentioned. But the rate at with which this is happening and the expansion, sorry, the developments within these areas, the things they ask the, their employees to do for free, uh, it, it's ridiculous. I've had people... Uh, call me and say, my boss is asking me to come on my free day to help paint, uh, uh, sorry, uh, paint uh, his new house. And if I don't do that, then I'll get in trouble. I mean, it, it, get, it goes even further than doing the dishes. It goes to actually showing up in free time somewhere to do something for your boss or else you'll get into trouble. At least that's what they make these people think. And getting back to the critical thinking, some people are actually stupid enough to believe that their boss can get away with this and they call me or called me when I used to work there. I can't obviously now because my study is uh, very time intensive but it, it gets very interesting and another example is and this is probably one to keep your eye out for too if you're interested in, in these sort of uh, mean things that bosses do to their employees. Um, another good one is um, I had uh, several people call me up and uh, their boss um, or their company actually schedules meetings outside of work time and they won't get compensated for it, but they have to attend the meeting. If they don't attend the meeting, uh, they will get into trouble as well, which can extend to all sorts of proposed problems. So what they're asking of their employees is that if they don't show up, after work time, even if they have children they have to tend to, and then they might possibly get fired and they won't get compensated for the time that they're at the meeting. So instead of scheduling this during work time, they threaten with this, and that's just fucking disgusting. Sorry for scolding on your show. Mm -hmm. No, I totally agree, and that's definitely a huge example of owning life because of the fact that they can do this. A lot of people get away with sexual harassment the same way. 
And, you know, you say that you know, obviously the boss can't get away with it, but, you know, I've found that especially, like, you know, I'm sure that once, once my wife puts together her report of the uh, amount of money that has been stolen from her because she has her clock out slips and she has her pay stubs and they don't match, um, she'll be able to whistleblow. She'll, she'll be able to probably have a successful lawsuit, et cetera, et cetera. And they won't be allowed to fire her per se, but I've seen companies, for example, do other things like drop your hours if they want to get rid of you. You know, they'll just stop giving you hours. And then eventually you'll have to quit and find another job anyway. You know, there are a lot of ways that employers get away with stuff that is not very traceable. Like I remember telling my mom I was having trouble finding work and I thought it was because of my long hair. And she's like, well, they can't do that. They can't discriminate you based on your hair. That's illegal. I'm like, yeah, but they're not going to tell me, mom, that they're not hiring me because of my hair. They're just going to hire somebody else. Now, I heard somebody key up. No, that was me. I was, I was, I clicked the button by mistake, but I did want to say, you know, all this stuff you guys are now talking about, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, are, are we, what century are we in? Because I thought they, we were supposed to have abolished slavery and yet it runs rampant yet today. You know, it, well, it's pathetic. And, and I was also going to say living in California, um, you know, the corporations and the companies nip that, little item in the bud that you guys are just talking about in that they've made it a no-fault state, meaning you don't have to give cause to fire anybody. You can you can terminate someone's employment. You don't have to give them a reason. You don't you can just say tomorrow's your last day and that's it. And they can't they can't sue them for anything. No, that's definitely right. Um, go ahead. I think I heard Chibi. Whoa, no, it was me. Sorry. Go that's ridiculous. I mean it's it's funny. I mean, Peter just talked about laws in his Iowa lecture as well, and as well as on the radio shows. But to even think that in California they can push regulations that that actually allow companies to do that. I mean, I'm from a European country, so uh, our our law system is uh, slightly different from yours. Um, but that's completely unthinkable here in in our society and. I think that it's not unrealistically to think that it could happen here as well. I mean, I am realist, but if you would mention that to another Dutchman right now that this is happening within your state, you would be declared insane because that, that's not possible uh, within the current law system here. It's what they think. But in fact, if, if it can go that far over there, there's no reason why it can't go over here. So guess we're already seeing one other effect of this uh, supposed beautiful system. Well, you know, um, I think that, you know, one of the reasons, this is another thing actually that came up recently, because uh, we talk about owning the truth and how that works into owning life. Um, basically, the, the subject of Lou Dobbs leaving CNN um, and the fact that Lou Dobbs was often labeled a racist because of his insistence on not giving up on the issue of illegal immigration. Now, obviously, as a member of the Venus Project, you know, I would like to see a world where everybody can be taken care of and everything is, you know, eventually we're citizens of the world, you know, and all that. That'll be great. The thing that's a problem here is this. Uh, because we have socialist programs in the United States, if foreigners who show up here and are able to take advantage of them without paying into the systems in question because they're not taxed uh, in many cases. 
um, that essentially that's thievery. Now, obviously, I want to get rid of the need for thievery at all, and I think that's a better solution. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that companies want foreigners to come to this country, and it's not because they're better workers per se. It's because they're workers who are willing to work for less, who are already in a state of desperation and poverty so that they will accept whatever working conditions you give them. And that's, you know, and, the, and then the, the next phase of that is that they tell us, the American workers, well, you need to be more competitive. You need to have a better work ethic. And what does better work ethic translate into? Well, better work ethic translates into being a company guy and coming in off the clock and doing stuff, you know, you know off the clock. Or it translates into taking a pay cut so that your boss can have a new yacht. You know, it translates into not caring about what hours they make you work or what your minimum wage is, you know, and being willing to accept that your part of the pie is going to be what the average third world country person is, you know, what they have. In Mexico, even having third world conditions, um, hold on just a second, um, even in those conditions are better than what they have. That was what we talked about earlier, you know, the slightly better than starving to death lifestyle that they have now <laughs> is better than, you know, because they've been given like $3 an hour, 50 cents an hour, whatever, you know, and that's an example of how the elite wants to own life even further but more specifically in that the reason that they're interested in these workers is not because they're better workers, but because they're desperate and they want a workforce that's desperate. And the more they get rid of those pesky unions who might ask for, you know, simple things like breaks and actually getting paid for when one works, you know, the more they get rid of them, the, the more you're going to see that the only thing that's going to compete, you know, with robots is going to be people who are willing to work as slaves. You know, and they own the truth. How do they do this? Well, they paint Lou Dobbs as a racist who's married to a full Mexican woman, I might add, which is what makes it even more ridiculous. But he must be a racist. It's not that he thinks that illegal immigrants shouldn't be able to come into a country and use um, social systems that they do not pay into, which essentially means they're leeching off of already broken economies because socialism doesn't work anyway. Okay. You know, it, it's instead that, you know, he must be racist. That's an example of how they, they, you know, it's a total ad hominem, first of all. It's textbook ad hominem. Well, you're a racist because you don't, you know, you don't agree with illegal, immigra you know, illegal immigrants being allowed to come over here. You know, and when I got involved in the argument, it was actually on Facebook. A friend of mine who runs, who basically helped uh, Ralph Nader's campaign and also worked on Senator Mike Gravel's campaign with me, had posted on Facebook about Lou Dobbs leaving CNN. And he pointed out, you know, basically there, there, an argument ensued in the comments on Facebook, and I got involved in it because they were, you know, spouting more that Lou Dobbs is a racist crap. And I pointed out to them that, you know, essentially um, their argument was entirely flawed, and it was based on the notion that it's all race. I said that up here in Michigan, we have a lot of, um, for example, Albanian illegal immigrants, and they're just as white as I am, you know. <laughs> But they're still illegal immigrants. It has nothing to do with race at that point. And I don't hate Albanian people. But you get my point, is that it's not a race issue. It, you know, if you contribute to something like that, then you should be able to get out of it. Now, I hear somebody keying up. Well, yeah, I'm a little confused on where that went. I, what kind of aid do illegal immigrants get? I know they can't qualify for WIC or Medicaid or 
apparently they can, and they do. Uh, we, we do get illegal immigrants that somehow manage to get on welfare. I believe uh, some of it is just through getting um, falsifying uh, Social Security numbers. Yeah, they do it here in California, the, the, the Mexican people that come up here and do that. Uh, have children up here, those children are then U.S. citizens because they're born here, and there's a loophole that allows them to get welfare and food stamps. Yeah, and like their kids use the public school systems, and I right. guess they get welfare that way. But exactly. if, if, the, if the market theory really works, that means these people are consuming, right? So they should be still stimulating the economy somehow, even if they do supposedly take American jobs, which I think is BS, but isn't that how the theory should work? I mean, if well, they take jobs... It should, but, uh, you know, at least, and I can only speak what I know in California, the jobs that a lot of these illegal immigrants do are jobs that white people don't want to do. You will not see white people out bending their backs picking strawberries or lettuce or whatever. You just will not see that. And so it gets, it gets right back to the, you know, who's going to actually do this job, and they are willing to do it. And you know what? They get paid very well, believe well, it or not. Well, I, I can tell you as a citizen in the state of Michigan, um, if my wife could get a job picking strawberries right now, she would certainly prefer that over flipping burgers. <laughs> but there's no jobs up here. <laughs> and we do have um, and we have a lot of legal immigrants on the farms here in Michigan. So I've just but I, I want to bring back to a relevant point here. The reason we're getting to this is that the motivation of the elite is not that they really care about these Mexican people though at all. Um, it's because of the fact that the people in question come from a culture where they're more willing to be peasants. That's, and it's not their fault by any means. It's just that their economy is so destroyed that they're more willing to accept the peasant lifestyle because it's better than the starving-to-death lifestyle they have. In America, in Americans generally, you know, expect more out of their you know, work day, and they have unions and things to protect them. So I hear Chibi's mic again. Oh yeah, I was just. I'm I'm actually all for closing the borders, to be honest, but only if that means closing it to resources as well. But that's just a thought. <laughs> well, eventually, if we have a Venus Project society, none of us will have to be doing this, and we won't have any profit-minded workers, or more specifically, employers who are employing people in slave labor conditions because their profit is more is more of a concern than humanity. Yeah. If we had time, I was going to pose a moral question, actually. Go ahead, actually. We have 21 minutes. Um, it relates to what, what I brought up earlier, because honestly, I did have a question about this, and I, I believe morals are relative constructs, but I'm still a little confused. Um, when it comes to other people's children, for example, where do you draw the line where it's okay to tell some, to give information, as long as you're not, you know, forcing it down their throat, right, and it's somebody else's kid and you're going over, like, but just generally offering information to another child who is not yours, is there anything morally wrong with that, really? I mean, if it's done in a way that it's just offering information, um, I guess it depends on the topic. If it's something about health and nutrition, it, you know, most people would say, yeah, well, what's the big deal about that? But if it's something about religion, like, I mean, everybody kind of cringes and you say, whoa, wait a minute, you know, you can't tell my child about evolution. You can't tell my child, uh, you can't pose logical questions to my child about, you know, 
this. Well, I mean, that goes both ways, too. I don't, I don't want my child brainwashed to any religion either. That's, I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't, I mean, honestly, if this will answer your question, um, at least for me as a parent, um, I am very careful about what I expose my children to, particularly at the youngest ages, uh, because of the fact that they are so malleable at those ages that anything you tell them will become reality. You know, if you tell a four-year-old, you need to do what this book says, otherwise you're going to this bad place where you're going to be burned for eternity, they're going to believe you. And if you maintain that around them forever, it's going to stay there. And so for me, for example, like with my wife's ex, she didn't want, he didn't want his daughter to be exposed to anything else. Whereas for me, it's, I don't want my children to be exposed to any of it until they're old enough to make that decision for themselves. You know, and that's, which is which is why it's so important to raise children to be critical thinkers and to question everything, so that they're not led astray by these crazy people. Very much so. I mean, of any kind. I mean, it's and it's it, it comes down to the notion that um, you know we we talk about raising critical thinkers. We don't want fanatics, and that begins with childhood for sure. Um, and I think that go ahead, Chidi. Well, I guess the question is, um, if somebody else came to your child and just offered them a Bible and that was it and didn't try to, like, force anything down their throat, would you feel like that person was morally wrong and somehow infringed on your rights of, of what information your children are allowed to be exposed to? Or Because that's how it is from their point of view. If Let's say they are Bible thumpers and then somebody comes along and questions that to their children they're going to look at it as just the opposite way that you would. So I'm just wondering what you would say about that morally. Would it be wrong for someone to come up and hand them a Bible and then let them decide for themselves? No, that doesn't really bother me. Um, It doesn't bother me until it goes from exposure to information to indoctrination of propaganda. As long as they're not trying to uh, force my child to think one way or the other through coercion, because in many cases that's what many religions do. It's the fire and brimstone notion that's supposed to be free will. You can choose to go along with X religion, or you can choose to go to hell. <laughs> as long as nobody's giving, me those, giving those options to my child, they can hand them a Bible, a Koran, you know, a, you know, one of the books of Taoism, I don't care. As long as it's being exposed that the child can read it for themselves, that, that's less of an issue. Also, we also, it also depends on age. It's like my child right now is subject to whatever I tell her. You know, she's just going to go along with it. Um, but uh, my child, you know, but when my child is say, I don't know, 14 or so, I mean, it, it depends on the individual, and they're asking me questions and learning about these things on their own. That's a totally different world. You know, uh, at that point, you know, it's it's actually my point. I would want to stand aside and let them make whatever decisions they wanted. Well, I guess I should pose it another way. Um, if you had somebody like a niece or, or somebody that you could say wasn't a complete stranger on the street, would you think it was wrong for you to say something to that child that was against their parents' wishes? Um, you felt it was, you know, accurate what you were offering, and, you know, accurate information or whatever, even well, yeah. if it's crossing a moral line. Well, on a more personal level, you definitely are, are, are touching on something that, you know, is, is a little bit easier to deal with. But, like, 
I know what you're talking about because it comes up all the time in the argument about prayer in schools, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance having obviously Christian tones, uh, you know, the Christian, the, 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 what is it, the, um, the Christmas tree stuff that's put in all of the, the schools. You know, What's um, the Pledge of Allegiance? Oh, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, it just occurred to me, we have somebody from another country on the call who I should probably talk about. Okay, <laughs> the Pledge of Allegiance is a kind of an, uh, an oath of fealty that we have our children say every day at the beginning of class. Um, and it includes words like, let me see if I can even remember it, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So the, the one nation under God part, and that's the other thing. If you refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance, you can get in trouble for it. There's actually a kid right now who refuses to say the Pledge of Allegiance because gays are not allowed to marry. Um, he made it on CNN. Um, and so that's an example of uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and why it's a, a statement of controversy. You know, because it, it basically forces... Um, into the institutions we use to train our children to be adults, uh, religious connotations. And I think that, uh, for example, I don't want my children exposed to religion in school, not because I want to expose them to mine, but because I don't want my children to be making spiritual decisions based on psychological indoctrination. I want them to make those decisions based on their own experiences when they're old enough to understand them. And that, in my opinion, is the only moral way to take responsibility for somebody else. Okay. I was just trying to burn some time, and it was a question on my mind anyway, so I thought it was worth discussing. Yeah, I think what Chibi's trying to do is find out what your take is on his situation where he has his niece carrying around the I Love Jesus pencil or whatever it was, you know, and, and how they're... Um, you know, praising her and, and applauding her and saying things like, oh, look, she's on fire for Jesus. And and I, I, from what I know of Chibi, and as well as I know him, I know he probably has to literally almost bite his tongue and, and turn away to not be able to say, wait a minute, you know, wait, 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 stop. You know, she's six years old. Why are you doing this to her kind of thing? So maybe that sheds a little light on it. Well, you know, in Zeitgeist Addendum, Jacques points out that we indoctrinate our children uh, to whatever specific um, religions we have, nationalism we have, you know, and that's part of society kind of being its own self-appointed uh, defenders of the status quo. Um, and I think that uh, that's one expression of it for sure, is that the reason that parents are scared about it is that they want their kids to turn out like them. Um, I think that some of that comes from the fact that people kind of consider their children to be their immortality. Um, but, you know, do, do you follow what I'm saying with that? Yeah, I guess to me it seemed like I look at it as people see their children as their property. At least that's how they treat them. That's what, why I brought it up earlier on in the discussion. Right, meaning they, me. you know, they own, those are my children, I own them, therefore I have, the only, I am the only one that has the right to choose what they hear, what they see, what they're exposed to, because they're my children. Exactly. And I think that, no, I agree with where you're coming from, and I think that that's a very dangerous road for people to go down, because at that point, they're not, you know, I, you know, mind you, my, I was 
you know, as I talked to Jock about my childhood, you know, he was he smiled very broadly when I explained what my mom was like. Uh, my mom, for example, did not allow me to get baptized when I was, see, I think I was like seven, uh, because I was living with my brother at the time, and he was very much involved in the ministry. And, you know, through peer pressure, eventually I got convinced that I should be baptized. And she said, I don't mind if you choose to do that later, honey, but right now I honestly believe that you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons, and I would wait for you to do it until you're older. Now, in retrospect, whether or not I had decided to splash some water in my head is not exactly relevant, but I see her point, and I'm glad that she said that. Well, yes, agreed. I mean, it, it's a good thing, and um, I think uh, that's one of the best examples you can have for, for parents that do have the best interest in for their children as well. But from the things you described, also explaining this pledge that you guys what American people have to make in class, um, I mean, it, it just shows how how bad the state of affairs is in terms of these pledges and everything. I don't, I can't speak for the whole of Europe, of course, but I know that currently in the Netherlands, it's 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 not as as bad uh, yet, but I mean, it could get so with the development uh, of how everything is going and. Uh, the level of control you want to exercise on population. Um, also, another thing you mentioned before was uh, the the immigrants and the social systems and the benefits they might or might not use. I mean, here in Europe, and specifically in my country, our social system is, uh, I mean, we, we get money from the government if we're homeless. I mean, we... They say America is a very rich country, but I think if we would uh, compare these economies uh, of fake money uh, with each other, I think that the Netherlands, in comparison, would be much richer than America if we would use the same population numbers. Uh, you know what I mean? If we compare it on the on the same level, I mean our government is able to pay everybody that doesn't have a job a certain amount of money per month and they are entitled to it by terms of law. So, uh, and even these immigrants who come here also get these benefits and are able to get a certain amount of money, which would equate to about $1,500 a month. Um, but, of course, okay, that doesn't touch any of the real points that were made. One thing I did want to say is that for some, well, if we are going to, talk about uh, certain groups and certain individuals, and I know you didn't intend to uh, segment any group or put any group in particular in one um, box, but I know there are others out there that do this, especially with in America, the Mexicans. Uh, here in the Netherlands, we have, sorry, that was my computer doing an update. Um, here in the Netherlands, we have also different uh, immigrants coming over, and uh, mostly worldwide. I think it there is a point in this argument that uh, they shouldn't be able to reap the benefits of the social system. Otherwise, I think they do, because uh, I think that if we look at it from the current system's perspective, all the damage we have done to other countries, I don't find it weird that immigrants are coming, knocking on their, uh, raising their hand and saying, wait, don't you owe me something? 
Well, I think what I was mostly getting at, you know, and you were right, I'm not trying to single anybody out. My problem actually, and this is one of the things, my opinion was actually formed. I'm going to, I'm going to end up telling this story again, but um, a friend of mine named Raphael, a uh, very well-educated Mexican, I used to play uh, Star Wars Galaxies with him, and we'd hang out on Ventrilo. Uh, Star Wars Galaxies, of course, being Star Wars, had people from all over the world. And he was a, a well-educated Mexican. He was a lawyer. Uh, citizen of Mexico, had a lot of national pride, really did not like the government of the United States, can't really blame him. And I, I asked him what he thought about outsourcing, because uh, at the time I was watching a lot of Lou Dobbs. And he's like, well, what do you think about it? And I said, well, they're telling us that, you know, we are lazy, we don't have good work ethic, and, you know, and he starts laughing on Ventrilo. And I was like, you know, what's so funny? And he's like, there's just as many lazy people in Mexico as there is anywhere else. What they really want you to do is they want you to settle for the same lifestyle that they make the average Mexican settle for down here if they're going to work in the plants that they set up here. They want to not have to go to third world countries to uh, basically to pay people, you know, pennies on the dollar. They want that to be the standard. They want labor, the whole uh, subculture of labor itself, to basically be reduced to the same way that Mexicans, people from Bangladesh, from India, uh, some of these other countries that are exploited are willing to live. They want the psychology to be as thus. Yes, you have to be more competitive. You need to comp compete with these people over here that are basically agreeing to be peasants. If you're not willing to be a peasant, well, then I guess you're just not going to get any money at all. That's basically what they tell them. And you have to accept, you know, lower and lower qualities of living. George Carlin did a very good uh, piece on this called Who Owns You? Um, I don't have it. But uh, somebody actually put it to music, and it was part of the Ron Paul Revolution, which I found ironic because what George was talking about was very much slamming capitalism. But um, and he points out, you know, how we get to basically have to we get to be forced to uh, accept the decreasingly, you know, you know, increasingly shittier jobs, is how he put it. Uh, you know, that just get worse and worse and worse. You know, and um, and that's that's essentially how the system erodes. So it's not even really that it's, it's not good for them to have to come here and work at substandard living. If they're going to show up here, then the same kinds of basic human rights that the unions had, had originally been intended to establish should apply to everybody. These companies don't bring these people here for any reason other than the fact that they're so desperate that they don't care if you make them work 12 hours when they're only getting paid for eight. Do you understand what I'm saying? That it's, it's not to their benefit at all. I mean, we had that one guy on my show a long time ago. I was like, yeah, well, we're, we're doing those guys who are paying 10 cents an hour a favor, you know? They were starving to death before. We're doing them a favor. You know, did, did, <laughs> you, did you, do you remember that? Yes, 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 I, I do remember that. And, and yes, I, I understand that part of, of, and the point that, that you are making with that it's, it's not beneficial for either of, of the parties that for the immigrants, they they don't really reap the benefits anyway because they're being used like slaves and that for the other party it's detrimental to everything that's built up with the, the rise of unions etc all the standards are being brought down anyway uh, because they want to make you believe uh, that it's good to compete with the peasant lifestyle because that would uh, be good work ethics, or however you would phrase that in English. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. No, it's it is basically a play on words. They don't say words like peasant, but yeah, they say it's like at work ethics. And work ethics 
ends up including a bunch of crap that you shouldn't ever have to do for an employer. Now, don't get me wrong. Some unions get really out of control. And that doesn't help because I honestly think, in my opinion, the way that this all started was that um, unions basically were formed back when even the United States' work labor conditions were terrible. Uh, they, were, they were formed to try to be able to make it so that the workers would be able to come together um, and fight the elite, so to speak, uh, to be able to get an equal portion of the pie, to be treated well. To, you know, and in many cases, we're talking about unions that are fighting things like child labor, you know, really bad stuff. You know, working in abhorrible conditions is what unions were originally formed for. Um, it got out of control, and it turned into um, eventually, once they realized, hey, wait a minute, we got a lot of power over these companies. You know, I, I kind of feel like uh, getting paid 50 bucks an hour for doing this assembly line job. And, uh, hey, George, you, you need to, to not work quite so hard, man, because you're, you're, if you do that, you're going to raise the standard of what they expect for us. So you, why don't you just actually, in fact, you, you're part of the union. You have to take a break right now, even if you don't want to. You know, that, that's an example of how the, the greed corruption system went the other direction. This is why the, the labor system, empowering labor, is not the answer either. Because once that gets out of whack, then they end up choking certain companies to death. I honestly think that most of the first outsourcing started with companies who had no choice. They could either bow to the unions or go, you know, and go under or move somewhere else. And then eventually, companies that didn't need to do it, like Disney, you know, Lou Dobbs just slammed all over Disney, uh, moved all of their animation studios to India uh, and fired everybody in America. They pay uh, people in India fast food wages now to animate their billion-dollar cartoons. Um, you know, they, people who didn't have to do it started doing it anyway. So then what happens is the pendulum of greed is swinging back in the other direction, which is, well, now we've figured out a way to avoid you organizing and working together to make it so that we have to treat you like human beings. Um, on top of the fact that we're also working on automating all of your jobs in the first place so that we don't even need you. So, uh, did you see where I'm coming from? Yes, definitely. And I actually uh, started to laugh at, at how, how you described that. Not in the sense that I'm mocking you, but it was pretty funny how you did it with the intonation. And, and I mean, that's just a classical example about how both parties uh, in this corrupt system will work to get their way the best as possible. That's why I do want to press with the limited time that we still have left is that it's not only the corporations and it's not only the participants as in the people seeking to provide labor. I mean, it's, it's both sides of the, of the oh, sorry, both parties that, that will eventually be led into corruption within the current system because everybody wants the best part of the pie that they can get because that's the, that's the only means that the current system provides to them uh, to survive. All right. Well, um, we're down to the last 90 seconds of the show. Um, thanks again for everybody tuning in to V Radio. Um, thanks again for all of you guys. And I want to actually make, give a big thank you to all of the people who have been panelists for me in the past. You really helped make this show what it is, and I couldn't do it without you. This show is not just about VTV. It's about Thunder. It's about Paradigm. It's about Chibi. It's about Dark Dancer. It's about everybody who's ever come on here, everybody who's ever called in. And I thank you. Uh, thank Peter 
and Roxanne and Jacques for telling people about this show. Um, but it really is just about trying to give you guys something else to listen to other than the crap that's being spoon-fed to you. All right, everybody, say good night. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody, and be sure to tune in to my radio show tomorrow night. Sorry, I had to get a plug in there. I'll have Acharya S. on my show for 90 minutes uh, tomorrow evening, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, and on vradio.org, you can get links to Thunder shows as well in my area of linking to other uh, Venus Project-relevant radio shows. Um, So I'm going to play some parting words from uh, Jacques and Roxanne, and uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Take care, Neil. Um, this is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.